Hello and welcome to Sermons from First Press, a weekly podcast from the First Presbyterian Church of Ann Arbor, Michigan. Let us pray. Dear Lord, as we hear the words of your Apostle Paul, help us gain better understanding of how they apply to our lives today. Amen. The scripture for today is from the book of Ephesians, chapter 3, verses 1 to 12. Paul's ministry to the Gentiles. This is the reason that I, Paul, am a prisoner for Christ Jesus for the sake of you Gentiles. For surely you have already heard of the commission of God's grace that was given to me for you and how the mystery was made known to me by revelation as I wrote above in a few words, a reading of which will enable you to perceive my understanding of the mystery of Christ. In former generations, this mystery was not made known to humankind, as it has now been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit. That is, the Gentiles have become fellow heirs, members of the same body, and sharers in the promise of Christ Jesus through the gospel. Of this gospel, I have become a servant according to the gift of God's grace that was given to me by the working of his power. Although I am the very least of all saints, This grace was given to me to bring to the Gentiles the news of the boundless riches of Christ and to make everyone see what is the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God who created all things so that through the church the wisdom of God in its rich variety might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. This was in accordance with the eternal purpose that he has carried out in Christ Jesus our Lord, in whom we have access to God in boldness and confidence through faith in him. This is the word of the Lord. A reading from Matthew's Gospel. In the time of King Herod, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem asking, Where is the child who has been born king of the Jews? For we observed his star at its rising and have come to pay him homage. When King Herod heard this, he was frightened and all Jerusalem with him. And calling together all the chief priests and scribes of the people, He inquired of them where the Messiah was to be born. They told him, In Bethlehem of Judea, for so it has been written by the prophet. And you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For from you shall come a ruler 
who is to shepherd my people Israel. Then Herod secretly called for the wise men and learned from them the exact time when the star had appeared. And then he sent them to Bethlehem, saying, Go, go and search diligently for the child, and when you have found him, bring me word that I may also go and pay him homage. When they had heard the king, they set out, and there ahead of them went the star they had seen at its rising, until it stopped over the place where the child was. When they saw that the star had stopped, they were overwhelmed with joy, and on entering the house, they saw the child with Mary his mother, and they knelt down and they paid him homage. Then opening their treasure chest, they offered him gifts of gold and frankincense and myrrh. And having been warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they left for their own country by another road. This is the word of the Lord. One of my former neighbors in Virginia, we'll call him John, lived down the road just a bit. John had one passion, as far as I could determine. It was cultivating the absolutely perfect lawn. It was a beautiful thing to behold, a beautiful, flawless two-acre patch of green that was as smooth and uniform as the pool table. Nearly a blade of grass was bent or brown or out of place, and no leaf or twig ever spent more than five minutes on John's lawn during daylight hours. But living out in the country, things happen that you just don't have control over. Dandelion seeds blow in from the fields all around, and brown patches mysteriously appear in the green carpet in spite of the best efforts of the gardener. And it wasn't unheard of cows to escape from the adjacent pasture and find their way to the man's luxurious lawn. And more than once I noticed another neighbor's horses grazing contentedly on John's fine festival. John failed to work up any appreciation for the organic fertilizer that they left behind. (laughs) And as meticulous as John was in creating this two-acre spot of absolute order. Chaos had a way of bullying itself into his world. And there was one other absolute certainty about my neighbor John. Every evening when the sun went down, he would turn on the front porch light. The rhythm of it made me wonder if the light was on a timer, but over time I noticed there was enough variation in the light peering to make me realize that he did switch the light on manually each evening. It was dark in that patch of Piedmont, Virginia. No street lights, and this one porch light stood out. Few other neighbors ever bothered to turn on their outside lights except when they expected company. It was a shining beacon. I could see John's porch light from our house over a half mile away. And it was just really one tiny, tiny bulb glowing in the deep and vast darkness. Another oddity stood out about John's house. There were never any Christmas decorations. Never. None. No Christmas tree, no angels or reindeer. There were no festive or tacky adornments, no LED lights hanging from the eaves. 
Nothing, not so much as a scrap of tinsel. Even our Jewish neighbors managed a brilliant spray of holiday cheer that brightened up our realm. But at this house, nothing shone but the porch light. It shone each and every night year-round, beating back the chaos and darkness of the world. I began to wonder if John's porch light was not a statement of faith of sorts. The world in which we live is composed of both light and shadows. We know that. We live in them. Our Old Testament begins with darkness, and the Gospels are infused with darkness. Darkness was over the face of the deep, Genesis proclaims in the second verse. Darkness was where it all started, and before darkness there was nothing but darkness. All was lifeless and void. Isaiah reinforces the unrelenting grip of the night. For darkness shall cover the earth, the prophet proclaims, and thick darkness will rest upon the peoples. The darkness today engulfs almost everything. There's an economic queasiness that lingers. There's a perpetual political stalemate that continues in many legislative chambers. Global warming persists and there are continual wars spread across the Middle East. All the while a foreboding terrorism spews nonstop hatred. And the darkness can be intensely personal as well. It shows up in individual dread and fear of losing a job and span of tensions between parents and children, difficult relationships that we endure, fears that kids have at school. But the darkness in Genesis is broken by God in great majesty. God speaking the word, let there be light. And that's all it took. And then in another period of gloomy chaos, Isaiah the prophet stood on the streets and proclaimed, Arise and shine, for your light has come, and the glory of the Lord has risen upon you. Upon you. Today our darkness is pierced by porch lights and street lights and movie marquees and it's also proclaimed by the lived life of congregations like this, communities of faith and service. And so it is today that we observe Epiphany, the Feast of the Shining, the Festival of the Light, and we come to the end of the journey that began in Advent with the announcement of the coming of the Lord, the streaming of the nations toward Israel, the birth of the Christ child, and the invitation to walk in the light of the Lord. Today we find ourselves momentarily gathered in a small town with an array of three kings. And there too is Herod. And lurking in the backdrop is David. And of course we know the Magi. And we know their gifts. And they know, we know they bring an excess of hopeful signs in the darkness. And here, beginning in Epiphany and going forward, we experience how God continues to make God's own self known in the world through Jesus, the divine Son, the light of the world. The Epiphany story tells us that the exotic wise men came from the east to Jerusalem in search of the special child, the one born to be king. 
and that that journey was directed by the mysterious star that Kristen Regal shared with our kids. And we know the star came to rest over a simple dwelling in an out-of-the-way village. And we know the Magi came bearing gifts, of course, wonders fit for the adoration of the new and heavenly king. Yet there's more than meets the eye in the arrival of these gift-bearing magi. They come from the east. They come from the direction of the rising sun, suggesting the image of light overturning the night darkness and announcing the coming of God's good news of salvation into the world. Matthew connects this story with the arrival of the three magi, the wise men, with Isaiah's prophecy about light entering the world. The Lord will arise upon you, Isaiah says, and his glory will appear over you. The second thing that happens with the presence of these three magi and their quest for God's Messiah is that it's an announcement that the world is changing, that God is indeed approaching and that nothing can remain the same in the presence of God's Savior. Matthew records for us all the darkness, the fear and the opposition that Jesus' birth initiates from the very start. Herod, not surprisingly, does not greet the news of a newborn king with joy, nor does he go out and search for a suitable gift to present to the Messiah. Rather, Herod, Herod is afraid, and not just Herod, but all of Jerusalem with him, Matthew tells us. Why? Maybe Herod turns fearful because he senses he might lose power, and that's what incumbent politicians dread. Lost to Herod and his advisors is any memory of the kind of servant leadership demanded by Israel and Isaiah and all the prophets. Gone is the notion that God placed them in positions of power to serve rather than to be served. Seeking his own ends and legacy, Herod is immediately threatened by the mention of another rival king. And the arrival of these three astrologers notices, announces that the reach of God's embrace is expanding, expanding and growing that there is no longer insider and outsider, but that all are welcome in the sight of God's kingdom. All women and men and children are accepted in God's plan for mercy and peace in the world. It's not a new thing, since from the beginning of the story, God has promised to bless Abraham so that he may in turn be a blessing for the whole world. But now at Epiphany, it is really happening with the arrival of the kings. All distinctions between people of different races and ethnic groups and religions is dissolving. All are becoming one in Christ. And who knows what might change next. Fear is a powerful thing. We know. We live with fear. And as a result, Herod, along with the chief priests, conspire to find the Messiah and to kill him. They will not succeed this time, but on Good Friday there will again be an unholy arrangement to capture and crucify Jesus. W.H. Auden's classic work for the time being captures just a sense of this. 
The Christmas feast, Auden writes, is already a fading memory, and already the mind begins to be vaguely aware of an unpleasant whiff of apprehension at the thought of Lent and Good Friday, which cannot, after all, now be very far off. But now, for the time being, here we are. And here we are. God has come into our world. The Lord has revealed to us a Messiah. And everything has changed. Or has it? What does fear do for us? Do we build more gates? Buy more guns? Demand that our police officers approach more people on the streets who might look different? from the rest of humanity? Do we install more security systems in our cars or homes? Do we save even more for retirement, pulling back on our generous commitments to the charities around us? All to make sure that we have enough, that we're safe enough, that we beat back the fear. Do we close our hearts and minds and spirits to those who are different? Do we leave the porch light on to stave off the doom or to declare that God lives in our lives and in our world? Matthew's nativity is different from Luke's. It moves rapidly past the joyous gifts of the wise men to a darker and murkier world of political deception and fear and violence. But if Matthew is more sober than Luke, it's more realistic and maybe more hopeful in the end, where we live in a world riddled by darkness and chaos and fear, a world of devastating superstorms and school shootings and random violence, in a world where human beings created in the image of God die every day to preventable illness and disease and neglect and hunger, who die from the lack of a safe, dry, and warm place to live. Matthew's story of the visit of the Magi paints an accurate, if not challenging, portrait of the world. I think that what's at the heart of Matthew's story of Jesus' birth is the promise that this is precisely this world that God came to. And it's exactly to these people, so dominated by fear, that who often do the unthinkable to each other and ourselves that God came and God showed God's own self. And it is to this gaping need that we have that God remedies with the light coming into the world on Epiphany. Jesus is Emmanuel, God with us, the living, breathing, and compassionate and vulnerable promise that God chose to come to be born among us, to live with us, and to die with us and for us, as we are, so that in Christ's resurrection we too might experience the newness of life. The poet Denise Levertov observes this. It's when we face for just a moment the worst that our kind can do, and we shudder to know the taint that is in our own selves, that awe cracks our mind and enters our heart. I think Matthew would agree. Matthew sketches this story of Jesus' birth in our lives with darker strokes 
precisely that we might recognize the light and glory and grace of God's redemption in Christ all the more clearly. Kind of like a bright star shining high in the heavens and leading us to greet our Savior and Lord. And kind of like a single porch light shining day in and day night, day out, beating back the darkness one house at a time. Thanks be to God that God has given us the light. Amen and amen. You are holy, O God of majesty, and blessed is Jesus Christ, your Son, our Lord. He was born to dwell among us, full of grace and truth. Baptized by John in the Jordan, he lived for you, spoke your truth, showed your love, and gave himself for others. In his death on the cross, he overcame death. Rising from the tomb, he raised us to eternal life and made with us a new covenant by water and the Spirit. Gracious God, our hearts rejoice in the light of your presence as we give you our thanks and praise, for you are the fulfillment of all our searching. Since the time you created all things, you have had a plan hidden in mystery to draw all the world into one body and to share with all peoples your promises of glory. In Christ the light has risen, the mystery is made known. Your beloved child, Jesus, is revealed to the whole world as Savior and Redeemer and as the gracious Lord who reigns in justice and peace. You made him known first to the Magi from the East who came to pay him homage, though they knew of him only what the silent stars could tell. Loving God, you draw us again and again to your Son, Jesus Christ to offer our gifts of praise to the light of the world who lives and reigns with you and the Holy Spirit, one God, forever and ever. Hear us as we pray together, saying, Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our debts, as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. Thanks for worshiping with us. For more information, visit us on the web at www.firstpresbyterian.org or send an email to info at firstpresbyterian.org. See you next week for another sermon from First Press.